Good morning. In today's headlines, special counsel John Durham releases his long-awaited report on the FBI's investigation into the Trump campaign. Find out what it concluded and how lawmakers are reacting. The IRS throws up a roadblock at a whistleblower and his entire team investigating Hunter Biden for tax fraud. And the Justice Department allegedly played a role. Police released the age of the suspect killed in the New Mexico shooting, and two staffers for a Democratic congressman are attacked by a man wielding a baseball bat. We have the details. Could your Social Security payments be under threat? It's an issue that would affect almost 67 million Americans. We speak to an expert to find out more. And we bring you the story of a little gentleman, a young boy who shows caring and respect for his three sisters. His mom shares their so stories on social media. Good morning and welcome to NTD. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, May 16th. And make sure you stay till the end to watch a story about a man that lived underwater for 73 days. Wait, do we have a story about SpongeBob? <laughs> Not quite. No pineapples involved here. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure we have lots of hard-hitting news to get to first, so take it away. That's right. Thank you, Tiff. So first of all, U.S. Special Counsel John Durham released his long-awaited report yesterday. Durham investigated the origins of the FBI's probe into the Trump campaign for years. His report concludes that the Justice Department and FBI failed to uphold its self-proclaimed mission of strict fidelity to the law, among other deficiencies. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the report and reactions from lawmakers. Special Counsel John Durham's report states the FBI's handling of the probe was seriously deficient. He found the FBI rushed to open their initial investigation based on unvetted intelligence when the Bureau set out to determine if the Trump campaign worked with Russia to influence the 2016 presidential election and didn't interview those connected to the information. He also says agents had no actual evidence of collusion and were unable to corroborate a single allegation from their sources. The 306-page report contrasts this with how the department treated other politically sensitive investigations at the time, including an inquiry into the Clinton Foundation that was virtually frozen in the lead-up to Election Day. The FBI responded to the report, saying the conduct it noted was under previous leadership, and that the Bureau has since put dozens of corrective actions in place. Durham did not recommend any department guideline or policy changes in his report, instead saying the answer lies in renewed fidelity to existing rules. Former President Trump reacted on Truth Social, saying the American public was scammed and that Durham's conclusions prove the FBI should never have launched its Trump-Russia investigation. Mr. Trump called for accountability from Democrats and former FBI Director James Comey. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise demanded consequences. The congressman tweeted that the report reveals former President Obama's FBI had zero actual evidence of collusion when they began their investigation. House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik echoed the sentiment, calling the FBI probe a false smear manufactured and paid for by Trump's political opponents. She says the report has renewed her commitment to ensuring those involved are held accountable and face criminal prosecution. Congressman Jim Jordan stated he's reached out to the Justice Department to have Durham testify before the House Judiciary Committee next week. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
Joining me now to discuss this report is Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Good to have you, Mark. Can you please explain in simple terms first what the report found out about the FBI investigation and what it means? Well, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The Durham report uh, seems to be highly critical of the way the FBI handled the case in that there was a apparent political and ideological influence in the decisions that were made. The FBI, as any national police that in a democracy has to be completely independent and objective in its handling of investigations. And based on the Durham report, it appears that the Bureau did not act in an independent and an objective manner. Mm. Now, did it also find law-breaking? Will we ex can we expect criminal prosecution, or what, what can we expect there? Well, the report, from what we know so far, seems to have stopped short of actually bringing criminal charges, although there's a gray area involved where one could certainly argue that criminal charges could be brought, you know, for a number of charges to include lying to the FBI by certain witnesses uh, and you know failure to uh, adhere to certain criminal statutes in uh, in the pursuit of this investigation. And what will this mean for former President Donald Trump now moving forward? Well, it can certainly provide a, a basis for an argument that the case against him was based on politics and not on actual wrongdoing, the uh, the uh, so he, uh, the, the, it will bring the possibility of argument of strong arguments by Trump and also by congressional investigators that the FBI was essentially acting without a proper basis, without the foundation for the acts that it took. Durham has, has essentially said that the case should never have gone as far as it did, but should have been shut down once the Bureau realized that it did not have sufficient predication for an investigation of this nature. Hmm. Now, with, uh, with the report out now, what's going to happen next? What do you expect to happen next week? Well, I think that the uh, report's going to be used by congressional investigators as a, uh, to further support the ongoing investigations into alleged, you know, wrongdoing by, by the Bureau and by the Department of, of Justice. You know, the FBI has responded to the Durham report stating that a number of corrective actions have been put into place to prevent this kind of uh, activity going on in the future, such as with the FISA warrants. However, the Department of Justice's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, has recently criticized the FBI for a failure, according to him, and he represents justice internal investigations, a failure by the Bureau to uh, correct uh, the nature in, in which it's in, you know, per, uh, obtaining FISA warrants. So there's a good basis to argue that the, uh, that the corrective actions have really not been put into place. Uh, at this time to date, and it, it, it will need to happen if the Bureau is to return and to regain the respect and trust of the American people. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. Very interesting insights. Mark Ruskin, thanks. Always good to have you. Thanks for having me here.
The IRS has removed a whistleblower and his entire investigative team from its multi-year tax fraud investigation of Hunter Biden. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on this developing story. The whistleblower's attorneys say the move was done at the orders of the Justice Department. Their client is a criminal supervisory special agent who has supervised the Hunter Biden probe since early 2020. The whistleblower hasn't publicly identified Biden as the subject of the case he alleges is being covered up, but congressional sources have confirmed it. In April of this year, IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel appeared before the House Committee on Ways and Means. I can say without any hesitation, there will be no retaliation for anyone making a, uh, an allegation or a call to a whistleblower hotline. But the whistleblower's attorneys say the move is clearly retaliatory and may also constitute obstruction of a congressional inquiry. They add that their client has a right to make disclosures to Congress and is protected from things like receiving a significant change in duties, responsibilities, or working conditions. Attorney Tristan Levitt on Real America's Voice. And we're going through the process that is absolutely the way Congress intended it to be followed. And Levitt so, promised you know, to react. You know, we will be very vigorously watching to ensure that there is no further retaliation of our client. The whistleblower's attorneys say the experienced investigators have worked the relevant case for years and are now experts on it. They say their removal is exactly the sort of issue their client intended to blow the whistle on to begin with. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And two people were injured in a baseball bat attack on a congressman's office yesterday. The assailant first asked for Representative Jerry Connolly, then struck two of his workers with the bat. The attack marked the latest in an uptick in violence aimed at lawmakers or those close to them. Fairfax City Police said officers arrived within minutes and detained the man. The two staff members were treated for injuries that were not life-threatening. The Democratic congressman says the suspect was known to police but had never made threats against him. The attacker's father told the media that his son has schizophrenia. Connolly told CNN he thinks the attack involved, in his words, real mental illness. Still to come, we speak to an expert about social security and the risk of U.S. default. It's an issue that could affect almost 67 million Americans. And parental rights in education. Attendees at a rally expressed their key concerns on this hot-button issue. That story and more after the break. Welcome back. The Supreme Court announced yesterday that it will hear a case to determine whether South Carolina's congressional districts need to be redrawn. The main question is whether Republican lawmakers discriminated against black voters. NDD's Arlene Richards reports. In its latest order list, the Supreme Court agreed on Monday to hear a case examining whether South Carolina's congressional map discriminates against black voters in Charleston County. The case, Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP, was brought to the highest court after a panel of three federal judges, all appointed by Democrats, ruled that race was the predominant motivating factor in the General Assembly's design of Congressional District No. 1. The Republican district runs along much of South Carolina's coast and is currently represented by Republican Representative Nancy Mace. The panel further found that to achieve a target of 17% African-American population in Congressional District No. 1, 
Charleston County was racially gerrymandered and over 30,000 African Americans were removed from their home district. According to the Epoch Times, gerrymandering can mean unusually shaped districts, or it can refer to an excessive effort to protect the state's dominant political party. It can play out in a variety of ways, including varying the population of districts just enough for the party in power to get an extra seat out of the process. In court papers, Republican lawmakers have asked the court to consider a number of arguments, including whether or not the lower court should have analyzed District 1's compliance with traditional districting principles. A legal group representing the South Carolina NAACP said the lower court reached its decision by applying firmly rooted Supreme Court precedent to well-supported factual findings. Now that the case is on appeal, we expect that the Supreme Court will follow a similar path and affirm. The case is expected to be argued before the Supreme Court in the fall. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Treasury Secretary Yellen reaffirms the U.S. could run out of money to pay bills by early June. In 2023, an average of almost 67 million Americans per month will receive a Social Security benefit. We spoke with experts to see if your Social Security checks could be impacted should the U.S. default. NTD's Colin Fredrickson tells us more. Social Security could be affected because Republicans and Democrats can't agree on the debt ceiling. Basically, the federal government has borrowed so much money that it's hit the maximum amount allowed by law. So it may need to borrow even more in order to pay off its obligations, including Social Security payments to retirees. The Democrats and the Republicans, we've got one side that's saying they want to cut spending and the other side is saying, hey, we're not willing to accept any spending cuts. And they're throwing Social Security in there as if that's going to be the thing that gets sacrificed. Devin Carroll is a financial planner at Carroll Advisory Group. He runs a YouTube channel dedicated to Social Security education. Carroll believes Social Security payments won't be affected at all. He says that a 1996 law called the Social Security Escape Clause would continue the payments. The law activates the Social Security Trust Fund if the government defaults. Assets in the trust fund can be used to fund benefit payments. And considering that there's about $2.9 trillion in the trust fund right now, and the annual outlays of the Social Security program are about $1.2 trillion, well, there's enough in there for the politicians to argue for a couple of years on this. The Social Security Trust Fund has been funded over the years by excess contributions to the system. However, many see problems with the fund. If the government defaults, then the fund, which holds government securities, may not be able to fully pay everyone. So Social Security payments are at real risk of being delayed or reduced. But the government has never fully defaulted before. The Democrats and Republicans are negotiating over a bill to raise the debt ceiling. And in the past, that has always happened. Uh, so we should expect both sides to negotiate probably right up to the deadline before striking a deal. Jason Sorens is a senior researcher at the American Institute for Economic Research. He also says the Biden administration is more likely to furlough federal workers than to cut Social Security, which he calls political suicide. Social Security recipients make up a large portion of voters. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Parental rights in education has become a hot-button issue. A rally in New Jersey yesterday touched upon some key topics, including the alleged indoctrination of children in schools. Let's take a look. The Parental Rights and Education Freedom Rally took place in front of the New Jersey State Capitol on Monday. 
The organizer of the rally, Paul Laud, is the chapter director of No Left Turn in Education in central New Jersey. He told NTD, for one thing, parental rights in education means school choice. Parental rights means that they should be the, the principal authority on, on the health care decisions and the education decisions uh, concerning their children. And the content and curriculum should be transparent. And it should cultivate a good citizenship. It should cultivate success as, as uh, someone competing in a job market. But it's not doing that anymore. They're not even getting reading proficiency anymore. New Jersey State Senator Ed Durr said he's at the rally to support people who speak up for school choice. He says he believes parents are not fully involved in their child's education nowadays. I believe that parents should have the right to decide where their children go to school, what type of curriculum, an age-appropriate curriculum is based on, and what is used on their child's body, whether it be a Band-Aid or an injection or a vaccine. That should be a parent's decision, not the government's. One of the speakers at the rally was Sherry Nardolillo, a stay-at-home mom with Moms for Liberty. She says a major issue in education right now is sex education curriculum. Since COVID, our, our children are at a 35% passing rate in math and 45% passing in English. We have a lot bigger problems than health and sex ed standards. Okay, we should be focusing on what they need to survive. Get a job, write out an application, speak to people. This is not, our health and sex ed standards are not what needs to be addressed. So Jennifer McCarr is a member of the Union County Board of Education in Central New Jersey. She says parents need to first be aware of what's happening in their child's schools and get involved in their local communities. You can have a very successful rally and you can have high numbers, but if you're not having the people work hard in, the, in your own community, then it wouldn't matter. So they can rally and then make more people aware of what's happening, but what the real, what the real work is, the real work is done inside the schools and in each community. The organizer of the rally is asking parents to pay attention to pending bills in the state legislature that seek to restrict parental rights. One such example is New Jersey Senate Bill 3592, which seeks to introduce legal protection for people who provide or allow children to receive gender transition services. Turning to a controversial reading event, locals in Northern Carolina protested at a college over the weekend. They say the event was inappropriate. Here's NTD's Eileen Ang with more. On Saturday, Las Positas College in Livermore, California, held a drag queen story time during its literary arts festival. But some locals are rallying against it. We're here to um, just uh, rally for the children um, that are inside getting read um, by the drag queen story hour, which is very concerning for all of us here, um, that they are being indoctrinated and we're fearful for um, the minds of these little children that have no choice. And um, what we're hoping is that, um, that the drag queens um, understand that they have the freedom to do what they want but not to indoctrinate the children. I only hear that there were seven children in there, but that was seven too many. Um, evidently, the person reading, the, doing the drag reading, uh, had an in inappropriate attire on where they can see through the dress. Luis Reynoso, a board of trustee for the Chabot Las Positas Community College District, 
who attended as a private citizen, said he's disappointed with what he saw. How dare you allow our kids to literally hug a, a, a naked man, practically a naked man. Now, as far as the school providing the venue, you know, there's better ways to spend money if they want to promote reading. This is not the way to do it. You cannot promote immorality with this. Uh, I saw a few run, run back to their parents and they looked somewhat uncomfortable, but that's just my observation. These children need to grow up in a safe environment. That's why we send them to school. That's why we send them to college, so they can be productive in the future in, in our society. They hope the school can focus on other practical life aspects like improving technology and way of life. NTD reached out to the Chabot Las Positas Community College District for a comment. Up next, we bring you the heartwarming story of a little gentleman, a young boy whose kind gestures towards his three sisters are shared on social media. And a new record has been set. A U.S. Navy veteran has spent more time living underwater than any other person in history. That's after the break in just a minute. Good to have you back. In today's Inspired News, we bring you the story of a little gentleman. A proud mom of four is sharing how her son is developing respect for women through his kind, caring relationship with his three little sisters. Here's the story. Are you going to try help, uh, to make them happy? Yeah. Yeah? What are you going to do? Um, 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 give them... My toy. 37-year-old Anna Brown is a single stay-at-home mom and content creator who came to the United States from Russia 12 years ago. She has two sets of twins, Sebastian and Elizabeth, age five, and Vivian and Francesca, age three. I feel like uh, they all uh, share a very special bond, but even more special, the bond between Sebastian and his uh, own twin sister. He always like, um, gives her something even more special or a better toy. The mother said she noticed Sebastian being kind to his sisters when he was a toddler. For example, he would give his own milk bottle to his twin sister when she was upset. He would also share his snacks and give his sisters a hand to help them out of the car one by one. He saw that he, they cannot, his sisters cannot get in, inside the trampoline, it's too high. So he pushed all of them like one by one to get into the trampoline and it was very sweet to watch. The mother of four says she thinks her son's behavior owes to both his nature and the nurturing he's received. No one teaches them specifically to uh, to act like that, to be this way. Uh, but also he learned it from, I think, his parents, grandparents. He saw how we treat each other and uh, being very uh, help, helpful, thoughtful, compassionate. The mother says she wants to be able to help her children be themselves. She says her family doesn't have a specific philosophy in raising children other than teaching them to be compassionate and thoughtful of others. I uh, try to um, explain them uh, that uh, they want to treat people the way they want to be treated as well. So if they do something, I ask them, would you like uh, that to happen to you? If you don't, don't do that. If you think it's a bad thing to do, it's just don't do. Ask, always ask yourself a question. Is it a good thing or bad thing? 
Brown runs an Instagram page where she posts about her four little children and shares Sebastian's kind gestures toward his little sisters. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. I think we need more kindness in the world. Oh, that is very sweet. You know, it's incredible though that how thoughtful he is at such a young age, and then he's always aware of what's happening in his surroundings. If his little sisters need help, stuff like that, that's awesome. Indeed, and actually speaking of surroundings, a scientist from Florida has put his name in the record books, an underwater record. An underwater professor breaks a record. U.S. Navy veteran Joe DeTore has spent more time underwater than any other person in history. He's lived in a habitat under the sea for 73 days now, and plants get that to live there for another month. He's hoping his experience will provide new information for scientists. He's proud of the new record, but says he has loftier goals for his research. The idea here is to populate the world's oceans, not necessarily, oh, just make another record. Gosh, that's so impressive. I don't know if I would survive down there. I feel like I'd get, like, claustrophobic. I was going to say that. <laughs> I'm actually pretty afraid of the open open sea and open water. Not it sounds life. cool, though. <laughs> it does, yeah. For whoever it, it's, uh, yeah, whoever it fits and wants to live there. All right, that's it for today's program. We'd love to hear from you. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Uh, thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Tiffany Meyer.